thousand miles up the nile section 23 this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit librivox.org a thousand miles up the nile by amelia b edwards chapter 8 thebes and karnak part 2 the mutilated colossi are portrait statues of the conqueror The obelisk, in the pompous style of Egyptian dedication, proclaims that the Lord of the World, guardian son of Truth, approved of Ra, has built this edifice in honor of his father Amen-Ra, and has erected to him these two great obelisks of stone, in face of the house of Ramesses in the city of Amen. So stately was the approach made by Ramesses the Great to the temple founded about a hundred and fifty years before his time by Amenhotep the Third. He also built the courtyard upon which this pylon opened, joining it to the older part of the building in such wise that the original first court became now the second court, while next in order came the portico, the hall of assembly, and the sanctuary. By and by, when the long line of Ramesses had passed away, other and later kings put their hands to the work. The names of Shabaka, Sabako, of Ptolemy. Philopater and of Alexander the Younger appear among the later inscriptions, while those of Amenhotep the Fourth, Khuanaten, Horemheb, and Seti, the father of Ramesses the Great, are found in the earlier parts of the building. It was in this way that an Egyptian temple grew from age to age, owing a colonnade to this king and a pylon to that, till it came in time to represent the styles of many periods. Hence, too, that frequent irregularity of plan, which, unless it could be ascribed to the caprices of successive builders, would form so unaccountable a feature in Egyptian architecture. In the present instance, the pylon and courtyard of Ramesses the Second are set at an angle of five degrees to the courtyard and sanctuary of Amenhotep the Third. This has evidently been done to bring the Temple of Luxor into a line with the Temple of Karnak. In order that the two might be connected by means of that stupendous avenue of sphinxes, the scattered remains of which yet strew the course of the ancient roadway. As I have already said, these half-buried pylons, this solitary obelisk, those giant heads rising in ghastly resurrection before the gates of the temple, were magnificent still. But it was as the magnificence of a splendid prologue to a poem of which only garbled fragments remain. Beyond that entrance lay a smoky, filthy, intricate labyrinth of lanes and passages, mud hovels, mud pigeon towers, mud yards, and a mud mosque, clustered like wasps' nests in and about the ruins. Architraves sculptured with royal titles supported the roofs of squalid cabins. Stately capitals peeped out from the midst of sheds in which buffaloes, camels, donkeys, dogs, and human beings were seen herding together in an unsavory fellowship. Cocks crew, hens cackled, pigeons cooed, turkeys gobbled, children swarmed, women were baking and gossiping, and all the sordid routine of Arab life was going on, amid winding alleys that masked the colonnades and defaced the inscriptions of the pharaohs. To trace the plan of this part of the building was then impossible. All communication being cut off between the courts and the portico, 
we had to go round outside and through a door at the farther end of the temple in order to reach the sanctuary and the adjoining chambers. The Arab who kept the key provided an inch or two of candle, for it was very dark in there, the roof being still perfect, with a large, rambling, modern house built on top of it, so that if this part of the temple was ever partially lighted, as at Dendera and elsewhere, by small wedge-like openings in the roof, even those faint gleams were excluded. The sanctuary, which was rebuilt in the reign of Alexander Aegis, some small side-chambers, and a large hall, which was perhaps the hall of assembly, were all that remained under cover of the original roofing-stones. Some half-buried and broken columns on the side next the river showed, however, that this end was formerly surrounded by a colonnade. The sanctuary, an oblong granite chamber with its own separate roof, stands enclosed in a larger hall, like a box within a box, and is covered inside and outside with bas-reliefs. These sculptures, among which I observed a kneeling figure of the king, offering a kneeling image to Amun-Ra, are executed in the mediocre style of the Ptolemies. That is to say, the forms are more natural, but less refined than those of the Pharaonic period. The limbs are fleshy, the joints large, the features insignificant. Of actual portraiture one cannot detect a trace, while every face wears the same objectionable smirk which disfigures the Cleopatra of Dendera. In the large hall, which I have called the Hall of Assembly, one is carried back to the time of the founder. Between Amenhotep III and Alexander Aegis there lies a great gulf of twelve hundred years, and their styles are as widely separated as their reigns. The merest novice could not possibly mistake the one for the other. Nothing is, of course, more common than to find Egyptian and Greco-Egyptian works side by side in the same temple, but nowhere are the distinctive characteristics of each brought into stronger contrast than in these dark chambers of Luxor. In the sculptures that line the hall of Amenhotep we find the pure lines, the severe and slender forms, the characteristic heads of a period when the art, having as yet neither gained nor lost by foreign influences, was entirely Egyptian. The subjects relate chiefly to the infancy of the king, but it is difficult to see anything properly by the light of a candle tied to the end of a stick, and here, where the bas-relief is so low and the walls are so high, it is almost impossible to distinguish the details of the upper tableau. I could make out, however, that Amun, Mot, and their son Khonsu, the three personages of the Theban triad, are the presiding deities of these scenes, and that they are in some way identified with the fortunes of the Fourth, his queen, and their son, Amenhotep III. Amenhotep is born, apparently, under the especial protection of Mot, the Divine Mother, brought up with the youthful god Khonsu, and received by Amun as the brother and equal of his own divine son. I think it was in this hall that I observed a singular group representing Amun and Mot in an attitude symbolical, perhaps, of troth-plight or marriage. They sit face to face, the goddess holding in her right hand the left hand of the god, while in her left hand she supports his right elbow. Their thrones, meanwhile, rest on the heads, and their feet are upheld on the hands of two female genii. 
It is significant that Rameses Third and one of the ladies of his so-called harem are depicted in the same attitude in one of the famous domestic subjects sculptured on the upper stories of the pavilion at Medinet Habu. We saw this interesting temple much too cursorily, yet we gave more time to it than the majority of those who year after year anchor for days together close under its majestic columns. If the whole building could be transported bodily to some point between Memphis and Siut where the river is bare of ruins, it would be enthusiastically visited. Here it is eclipsed by the wonders of Karnak and the western bank, and is undeservedly neglected. Those parts of the original building which yet remain are, indeed, peculiarly precious. For Amenhotep, or Amenhof Third was one of the great builder-kings of Egypt, and we have here one of the few extant specimens of his architectural work. The Coptic quarter of Luxor lies north of the great pylon, and partly skirts the river. It is cleaner, wider, more airy than that of the Arabs. The Prussian consul is a Copt, the polite postmaster is a Copt, and in a modest lodging built half beside and half over the Coptic church lives the Coptic bishop. The postmaster, an ungainly youth in a European suit so many sizes too small that his arms and legs appeared to be sprouting out at the ends of his garments, was profuse in his offers of service. He undertook to forward letters to us at Aswan, Corasso, and Wadi Halfa, where post-offices had lately been established. And he kept his promise, I am bound to say, with perfect punctuality, always adding some queer little complimentary message on the outer wrapper, such as, I hope you well my compliments, or wishes you good news pleasant voyage. As a specimen of his literary style, I copied the following notice, of which it was evident that he was justly proud. Notice. On the commendation, we have ordered the post stations in Lower Egypt from Asuit to Khartoum, belonging to the post Kedevi Egyptian in a good order. Now to pay for letters in Lower Egypt is as in Upper Egypt twice means that the letters which goes from here far than Asuit must pay for it two piastres per ten grams. Also that which goes far than Khartoum. The letters which goes between Asuit and Khartoum must pay only one piastre per ten grams. This and that is to buy stamps from the post and put it upon the letter. Also if somebody wishes to send letters insuranced, must two piastres more for any letter. There is orderation in the post to receive the letters which goes to Europe, America, and Asia, as England, France, Italy, Germany, Syria, Constantinople, etc. Also to send newspapers, patterns, and other things. Luxor, the 1st January, 1874. Lespetiore, Monsieur Ada. This young man begged for a little stationery and a pen-knife at parting. We had, of course, much pleasure in presenting him with such a modest testimonial. We afterwards learned that he levied the same little tribute on every dahabia that came up the river, so I conclude that he must, by this time, have quite an interesting collection of small cutlery. From the point where the railroad ends, the Egyptian and Nubian mails are carried by runners stationed at distances of four miles all along the route. Each man runs his four miles, 
and at the end thereof finds the next man ready to snatch up his bag and start off at full speed immediately. The next man transfers it in like manner to the next, and so it goes by day and night without a break, till it reaches the first railway station. Each runner is supposed to do his four miles in half an hour, and the mail which goes out every morning from Luxor reaches Cairo in six days. Considering that Cairo was 450 miles away, that 268 miles of this distance had to be done on foot, and that the trains went only once a day, we thought this a very creditable speed. In the afternoon we took donkeys, and rode out to Karnak. Our way lay through the bazaar, which was the poorest we had yet seen. It consisted of only a few open sheds, in one of which, seated on a mud-built divan, cross-legged and turbanless, like a row of tumbler mandarins, we saw five of our sailors under the hands of the Luxor barber. He had just lathered all five heads, and was complacently surveying the effect of his work, much as an artistic cook might survey a dish of particularly successful meringues a la creme. The meringues looked very sheepish when we laughed and passed by. Next came the straggling suburb where the dancing girls most do congregate. These damsels, in gaudy garments of emerald green, bright rose, and flaming yellow, were squatting outside their cabins or lounging unveiled about the thresholds of two or three dismal dens of cafés in the marketplace. They showed their teeth and laughed familiarly in our faces. Their eyebrows were painted to meet on the bridge of the nose, their eyes were blackened round with coal, their cheeks were extravagantly rouged, their hair was gummed and greased and festooned upon their foreheads, and plaited all over in innumerable tails. Never before had we seen anything in female form so hideous. One of these houris was black, and she looked quite beautiful in her blackness compared with the painting and plastering of her companions. We now left the village behind, and rode out across a wide plain, barren and hillocky in some parts, overgrown in others with coarse halfa grass, and dotted here and there with clumps of palms. The Nile lay low and out of sight, so that the valley seemed to stretch away uninterruptedly to the mountains on both sides. Now leaving to the left a sheikh's tomb, topped by a little cupola and shadowed by a group of tamarisks, now following the bed of a dry watercourse, now skirting shapeless mounds that indicated the site of ruins unexplored, the road, uneven but direct, led straight to Karnak. At every rise in the ground we saw the huge propylons towering higher above the palms. Once, but for only a few moments, there came into sight a confused and widespread mass of ruins, as extensive, apparently, as the ruins of a large town. Then our way dipped into a sandy grove bordered by mud-walls and plantations of dwarf palms. All at once this grove widened, and became a stately avenue guarded by a double file of shattered sphinxes, and led towards a lofty pylon standing up alone against the sky. Close beside this grand gateway, as if growing there on purpose, rose a thicket of sycamores and palms, while beyond it were seen the twin pylons of a temple. The sphinxes were colossal, and measured about ten feet in length. One or two were ram-headed. Of the rest, some forty or fifty in number, all were headless. Some split asunder, some overturned, others so mutilated that they looked like torrent-worn boulders. 
This avenue once reached from Luxor to Karnak. Taking into account the distance, which is just two miles from temple to temple, and the short intervals at which the sphinxes are placed, there cannot originally have been fewer than five hundred of them, that is to say, two hundred and fifty on each side of the road. Dismounting for a few minutes, we went into the temple, glanced round the open courtyard with its colonnade of pillars, peeped hurriedly into some ruinous side-chambers, and then rode on. Our books told us that we had seen the small temple of Ramesses Third. It would have been called large, anywhere but at Karnak. End of section 23